0: Welcome to another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources where we shine some light on what's going on in your environment. I'm your host Abigail Garfalo and I'm your co-host Amy Leppringhouse. And today we're here with Carrie Taylor, the Member Services Manager with Safe Electricity, here to chat about storm preparedness. Welcome Carrie. Thank you. So excited to have you on and talking about something very important, it's September, which means it's National Preparedness Month. And you know, what is that? Well, National
1: Preparedness Month is an observation each September uh, to raise awareness about the importance of preparing for disasters and emergencies that could happen at any time. You can actually learn more about it at ready.gov slash September, Uh, but it was created in this month for a variety of reasons and September 11th being one of those. But you can take what you're going to learn today and use that uh, throughout the year because storms and disasters happen all year long.
0: And even more so now it feels like, right? Like it just feels like I'm getting storms in the winter. I'm getting storms in the summer, the spring, the fall. Like there's no season in which there's really a break anymore, is there? Right. No, there are storms of every kind all year long. And then
1: not even just here in Illinois but across the country you've got a whole variety. So right and you're you're always like
2: I don't want to say always but it seems like I'm always caught off guard, right, when those storms are happening and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I should have done this. I know better than this. I should have taken some steps to be better prepared." But tell us, Carrie, What are some of those steps that we
1: can take while we're not in um, storm mode? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, I'll tell you four. So step number one, um, you need to learn the risks and responses and make yourself informed. Uh, Emergency alerts, you can receive important life-saving alerts really no matter where you are. So if you're at home or school or work, there are tools that can get you those alerts. Uh, Two of them would be wireless emergency alerts and the NOAA weather radio. Then there's also social media. Uh, Weather and safety information can be relayed through social media, although it's important to remember that that is not an official means of receiving important life-saving information, but it certainly can be a great tool, especially if the power is out and you've got your phone in your hand, you could monitor that social media. Uh, Natural disasters, know which natural disasters can occur in your area, and how to prepare for those and stay safe. Um, Other hazards, you can remember to plan for things such as pandemics, terrorist attacks, et cetera. And shelter and evacuation, make sure that you know where the nearest shelters are as well as the appropriate evacuation routes and plans for specific situations. So it's a great idea whether you're at home or at your office or even in a hotel, take note of that You know, as one of the first steps that you do so you know those evacuation uh, routes and those shelter in places. Uh, step two is to make a plan. Uh, it's a very important to make a family emergency plan that can be put into action as soon as disaster strikes. If you don't pre-make that plan, disaster strikes. It's not going to be helpful. So when it's a downtime, sit down with your family, make those plans, and make sure that you include your children, uh, seniors, disabled, and don't forget about your furry friends.
0: It's almost like I'm. It makes me think of uh, when you were in high school and grade school, like in a public school setting or, or even private school setting, and you know you had these like tornado drills and fire drills and stuff like that, and uh, after you graduate, you don't really have that stuff anymore. its it, I can't remember the last time I did, like, quote, a fire drill. And um, it's like, no, we should actually be planning for those in our own homes, it sounds like. Right. Yes, absolutely. Because your kiddos, you know,
1: or I mean, obviously your pets, they can learn roots and routine. But your kiddos, especially, they need to know those. So making that plan. And, you know, if you've got senior adults that live near you or your family members and such it's good to make sure that they can make those plans and know that uh, what they should do as well. And part of that is also building a supply kit. So that would be step number three. Uh, So when you think of a supply kit, it must be um, when planning for potential disasters, you've gotta make sure that you and your family have the necessary items that you need to sustain you Uh, until power you know if power goes out until it returns or help arrives so you got to think about food and supplies Uh, you need to um, keep in mind for your kit that it is kept uh, maintained uh, by keeping your food and water fresh and your supplies working properly and a little uh, tip is it's typically best to store your kit along with any pet supplies in a closet or a basement that's easy to access just and it a list and keep those things and start to pull them and keep in mind obviously non-perishables and water you know and one tip they say have a gallon of water per person per day so that's a lot of water but you know depending on how long you might be out you don't know if the power is going to go out you know and water water can sustain you uh,
0: even if you don't have food and things of that nature so that's a good point. I was just thinking I'm like how much is enough because I probably would go out shopping for my family and I'd either really overbuy, right? Or like really I don't know if I'd like I'd be super stressed about it. So, and should we be checking in with those supply kits like every year or like, you know, what's is there like a check-in recommendation for that to make sure everything's up to date? Right. Yeah. So, definitely because you want to make sure that the things
1: stay um stay good. Now, non-perishable items, canned items, uh, canned goods, you know, water, those sorts of things. Those do have a long shelf life, but I would say definitely check them once a year. And maybe you make September that time to do it because it is prepared this month. Put it on your calendar and just know that every September you're going to check that supply kit and update it. And, you know, if it's getting near its date, take the stuff out and use it. You've got some grocery shopping right there you just did in your own house. Uh, and then just refill and restock. So that's a great question.
0: I love that, rake the leaves and check the kit. That's right. (laughs) Great afternoon activities. Uh, Step four uh, would be to get
1: involved. So there are ways you can find um, opportunities to support uh, community preparedness. Uh, There are many ways to get involved before a disaster strikes. So ask yourself, how can I help? Uh, And one big way is to volunteer. There's a variety of different ways and places you can volunteer at, but um, some of those would include CERT, the Red Cross, your Neighborhood Watch, the Fire Corps,
0: Civil Air Patrol, and your American Radio Relay League. Wonderful. Well, you know, when we're talking about storms, that's kind of our spotlight this week. Sometimes our power goes out, and there's a lot of talk about generators and differences between the types of them and how they can be dangerous or even deadly. So could you share some details on different types of generators and just things that we need to know about them and how to use them safely? Sure. That is a great, great question. Uh,
1: There is a lot to know about generators and a lot of people uh, sadly are unaware of them. So while you may think that some of these things might seem um, like a no brainer, it is definitely information that people don't know. So uh, what I can tell you is that uh, generators are classified uh, by how much power or watts they can produce. The wattage measurement is important because it determines how many devices you can power. Um, According to consumer reports, the typical home requires 5,000 watts to cover your basic basic things. So, you know, we're talking like refrigerator, washer, dryer, that kind of thing. Just very, very basics. So there are uh, three different types of generators that I'll mention. The first being a portable generator. And because these usually run on gasoline, these are the ones that can be the most dangerous. Uh, These are gonna be typically the cheapest ones and the ones that people go for and get right away. Uh, So they're dangerous because they can produce carbon monoxide. And so the things you have to remember for that is because it produces carbon monoxide, never ever run these indoors or in an enclosed space. You need to keep these portable generators at least 20 feet from your home when operating them. And some of the newer models do feature a built-in CO sensor that will trigger an automatic shutoff if it detects a CO buildup. Uh, And other advanced models are designed to emit uh, less poisonous fumes. Um, both of these safety features have been put in place to save lives uh, because unfortunately there have been a number of deaths across the country related to improper portable generator use. It's been put in a garage or in a carport or somewhere and it emits that those CO fumes and it can be deadly. Um, The price range I mentioned for a portable generator can range anywhere from $400 to $1,000. So again, that's why that one is one that people kind of go for because it is more economical. You know, everyone has different needs and you have to assess your needs and your family's needs. And of course, nobody wants to go a week without power. And, you know, there are some folks that have medical needs and they have to have power. Um, So I hope that those folks would get one of the better generators that are safer. You know, I know just in July, we had storms roll through Illinois here and my family was without power for uh, just under 24 hours. You know, we lost everything in our refrigerator. So I didn't have to have the concerns about a portable generator, but I did have friends that went out and bought them. And my first question to them was, where are you using it? And do you know the hazards around it? And they were like, Yes. And here's where I'm using it. Thanks for sharing. That's great information. So a second type of generator is called an inverter generator. Uh, This type has a more complex engine than its portable cousin. And because of that, inverter generators usually cost more than those portable versions. Uh, They are much quieter. And Mm -hmm. um, that is because they throttle up and down to match the demand instead of running at constant full power. They can boast uh, more advanced exhaust systems, which also helps with the noise levels. And those types of generators range from $500 to $4,000. And if you pick this type of generator, you still need to follow the same safety precautions uh, with the portable version. But it is, if you've ever been in a power outage and you're like, what is that noise? It's probably a portable generator that somebody has because they can be quite loud. I know in our neighborhood in July that I was mentioning, we could hear a couple generators. There's a house down the road that has a built-in one. Uh, That one we couldn't hear at all, but we could definitely hear a couple of portable ones, though. And then, so I mentioned, the the permanent uh, that our neighbor has down the road, well, that's a standby generator. So those are the most expensive type of generators, and those models can range anywhere from 5,000 to 20,000 watts. Uh, So that's going to be if you want to generate, you know, your whole house um, or the majority of the appliances and things in your house, a standby generator is what you're going to need. It's permanent, Uh, experienced electrician has to install those. That is definitely not something that you can do yourself. Um, But the standby generators are the most convenient because they are permanently mounted and they kick on automatically when the power goes out. Uh, They run on propane or natural gas, and they can cost anywhere from $3,000 to $6,000, not including installation. They are going to be a bit of a higher price point, but you have much less of a scare with those as well as, uh, you know, they're going to auto pop on, auto kick on when they need to, and they're going to
0: generate more of what, you know, you would need uh, to get you through. So what I'm hearing is, is go in with your family, local family or friends and pick one house. That's going to be the storm house. Right. And that's it. You're like, <laughs> I, I checked the storms that come in. We're all going to grandma's. Like we're all, <laughs> <laughs> right. oh, that's your coolers with all the things you don't want to lose. Yep.
1: Go, go take your games and go over there. <laughs> right. All right. I
2: know with the standby generators too, um, I worked at a location, we had to test our, our generator every so often too. I think it was a monthly test we, we did on the standby just to make sure that it was, you know, it's working. Again, when we're not in a storm situation, we know that it's gonna work um, When we when we did encounter a storm, so. Well, you talked about carbon monoxide and the safety factors um, with the portable or even the inverter generator. So tell me what happens and what are the risks? What makes carbon dioxide so so dangerous that we need to really be, be uh, proactive about that?
1: Okay, yeah. So carbon monoxide um, is a deadly gas. Uh, and to kind of put this in perspective for you, uh, imagine one portable generator. So those are pretty small. Um, you know, if you figure maybe the size of like half of an ottoman or a coffee table, but like, you know, just the, the top portion of it, um, you know, they're fairly small. Uh, so you take one of those and that one portable generator can br- produce the same amount of carbon monoxide as hundreds of cars. You know how dangerous it is, you know, you don't start your vehicle in a garage with a garage shut because it will quickly produce that carbon monoxide and can kill you. Mm-hmm. So this one little small portable generator has the same amount as hundreds of cars. That illustrates really how gasoline powered portable generators can create a, such a risk of CO poisoning that it really can
0: kill in minutes. What are some other safety tips for generators that we should just kind of keep in mind? Uh, Good questions. Uh, So if
1: you have a generator, uh, plan to get one or know someone who does, then I would recommend write these steps down. Uh, I'm a firm believer when I write something, I remember it, share it with others. Um, But some key things are A, never ever plug a portable generator into a wall outlet. It can cause backfeed. Backfeed is dangerous. You don't want to cause that. Um, Never operate a portable generator inside a home, a garage, a basement, a crawl space, a shed, or on the porch, or even in a carport. Um, Opening doors or windows will definitely, it will not provide enough ventilation to prevent buildup of lethal levels of CO. Uh, You're going to want to operate your portable generators outside only and at least 20 feet from the house and you need to direct the generator's exhaust away from the home and any other buildings that somebody could enter while keeping your windows and other openings closed in the exhaust path of the generator. Uh, you're gonna wanna check that portable generator that they've had their proper maintenance and read and follow all the labels, instructions, and warnings on the generator and in its owner's manual If it's wet outside, make sure to keep your generator in a dry place uh, by placing it on a tarp or positioning it under a canopy, but not a carport, that is not a suitable place. And lastly, always make sure to turn off your portable generator and allow it to fully cool down before you have to refuel it. Well,
2: you were talking about that first point that you made, Carrie, was um, you mentioned backfeed. So explain a little bit more about what backfeed is and um, how can it
1: hurt us? So backfeeding is actually illegal and it's extremely dangerous. So if you think about it, electricity comes into your home from utility lines. But before entering your house, a transformer has to throttle power to 240 volts. In your home, electricity routes through a circuit breaker and travels then to appliances, lighting, and outlets. So simply put, backfeeding involves connecting your generator to an appliance outlet, so like a dryer outlet. Some people, that's where they would think, they'll plug it into the dryer outlet. Um, The problem then is that allows the electrical power to flow in reverse. And as a result of that, the energy moves backwards to the electrical panel and throughout the house, uh, which then goes back out into the power lines. So even if you think, oh, this is a harmless shortcut, you might be asking yourself, is backfeeding really dangerous and is it illegal? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. It's very uh, dangerous because it unbalances electrical loads and it can strain your generator. Um, Basically, if you don't shut off the main breaker, uh, the power is going to feed back to the utility lines outside your home, potentially shocking a maintenance worker. So if there's a line worker that's on that line um, doing some work trying to get your power back on and you don't do properly uh, what you need to for that generator and you back feed out to that line, it could electrocute uh, that maintenance worker with a serious injury and potentially even killing them so it it is definitely very dangerous and the illegal part of it comes from that if that were to happen you are responsible for the injury or the death of that line marker
0: some really serious stuff here definitely something that's good yeah. to know right because a lot of people probably plug that in and just don't even think twice about it when in reality there's some really serious considerations absolutely um, okay. Yeah. And I mean, and and also, too, like we're um, back on that carbon monoxide as well. Um, You know, we're thinking about all these safeties around around generators. You mentioned that it's, you know, carbon monoxide poisoning. It's really dangerous and, and it can happen so quickly. And there's some, you know, signs and symptoms. You know, what do I need to know about a detector of carbon monoxide? I know I have one in my house, but, you know, I. I thought about it, but I I wanted to make sure it was also a smoke alarm was really my main concern. But tell me a little bit more about uh, carbon monoxide detectors. Sure. Before
1: I get into the actual detectors, carbon monoxide, it builds up in your bloodstream. And when there's too much carbon monoxide in the air, your body will replace the oxygen in your red blood cells with carbon monoxide. That's what can lead to serious tissue damage or even death. And as I mentioned, it's a colorless, odorless, tasteless gas produced by burning gasoline, wood, propane, charcoal, or other fuel. And improperly ventilated appliances and engines, particularly in a tightly sealed or enclosed space, that is what's going to cause that issue. It's going to accumulate those dangerous levels. And as I also mentioned, make sure you get fresh air and seek emergency medical care promptly. But moving on to the the detectors and the uh, uh, symptoms, you've got dizziness, nausea, um, dull headache, uh, shortness of breath, confusion, blurred vision, loss of consciousness, if you have any of those, fresh air and medical equipment or medical personnel immediately. How you can kind of help yourself out, you asked about detectors. So carbon monoxide detectors and smoke alarms are different there are some that they're the same um detector they do both Uh, but there are benefits i think to having specific carbon monoxide detectors as well as smoke detectors your carbon monoxide detectors have a shelf life of around seven years but you need to test them once a month to make sure they're working test them and make sure because it can happen in your home too uh, you know, with a water heater or some you know one of your um, furnace type related equipment in your home. So you it's not just about generators in this sense. You generally are going to test those by pressing the test button so it's nice and easy. And where you need to have them, uh, you want to have at least one installed on every level of your home, including your basement uh, and near every bedroom. They should be installed inside an attached garage at least 10 feet from the garage door leading to your home and at least 15 feet away from a gas burning appliance like fireplaces or stoves. Both carbon monoxide and smoke alarms go hand in hand with using like the portable generators that we've talked about quite a bit. And it's best to make sure that you've got a battery operated or a battery backup CO detector on every level of your home. Uh, and operate, or I'm sorry, and outside all the separate sleeping areas. But the smoke alarm should be inside each bedroom, whereas your your carbon monoxide detectors should be outside each bedroom. And uh, you're gonna test both of them, the carbon monoxide as well as your smoke alarms monthly to ensure working order, and replace your batteries as needed. You know, they uh, definitely, they say replace them every six months, uh, your batteries. Um, but test them every month. And then, you know, just it's worth the expense to change those batteries every six months just to be safe. I've always heard at daylight savings, beginning and ending
0: is a good time to um to change those batteries. Yeah, that is. That's a great time. That's a good idea. I was just gonna say too, like, um, just like my partner's job is to is to do these kinds of things about our house and he sets an alarm in his phone like every six months so he's like great it went off now the next one six months from now and so it's kind of like that benefit that you see of like these kinds of technologies of having these personal devices is they give us this you know it's not just a calendar that we can lose it's like something that's always on us that see oh it's time to do that and an alarm's gonna go off when I have to do that and I think that's that's kind of cool because you know it's easy six months pass by and you're like, when's the last time I changed this two years later like so <laughs> like, Yeah, calendar reminders are great for that. And set one every month also,
1: Mm. you know, just to do your type, it's going to take you no more than 10 minutes to walk around your house and test each one of them. You can make it fun if you've got kids or spouse or a partner or a family member there, or even your furry friends, you know, it'll give a little beep and they'll be like shocked. What? What's going on? So make a little fun habit. (laughs) have it.
2: Exactly. Well, Carrie, let's talk about different scenarios um, that we encounter on a you know regular basis, and what we should do with our families, with our children. Uh, like you said, um, other uh, if we have older individuals in our homes. Um, so I'm going to give you some scenarios and tell you tell us what we should do in these scenarios. So if we have a storm approaching I'm, I'm, and I'm outside, I'm watching my kiddos or my nephews or nieces or grandkid or grandchild's of soccer game. What should I do if I'm outside, there's a storm coming and I'm sitting in my, you know, little lawn chair, what should I do?
1: Great, great question. Uh, so you want to be an advocate for your kids' sports practices and games. Um, so speak up to stop the play and seek shelter when a thunderstorm is approaching. Uh, If you hear thunder or you see lightning, that's it. It should stop. And if the coaches don't, bring it to their attention. I've done that for my kids at sporting events. The coaches are focused on the game. They maybe didn't see lightning uh, out in the distance, but I did and I tell them, and it it should stop right then, whether it's a practice or a game. And everyone needs to seek shelter. you don't want to seek shelter under a tree or in a shed. Uh, a line that is kind of fun to remember is, when the thunder roars, go indoors. Mm-hmm. And then about- you need to wait for 30 minutes um, after that last thunder clap before you resume play. So lightning can strike after a thunder stops. So that's why you give it 30 minutes to make sure that there's no um, additional lightning after that. Yeah, you talked
2: earlier about, you know, when you're in your home, you want a business plan, and if you're in a hotel, you know, where your nearest exits, and this is another example where a lot of us are outside at, you know, large concerts or large uh, sporting events, softball games, baseball games, and things like that, where it is, it's good to have that, you know, shelter plan if you, if a uh, storm brews. Or I'm hiking.
0: Yeah, We are, you know, a natural resource podcast. It's probably a lot of us outside who are hanging out in in a forest preserve or something. And we're like, we should know kind of where the closest shelter is whenever we kind of go out at a site. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, another scenario for you, you know, I'm I'm at my house uh, and I get a tornado alert. Maybe it goes off on my phone. Maybe I I had like, but I got a, a tornado alert and I'm in my house. What are some tips? Okay. So if you're at home and you've got a tornado alert, you're gonna to wanna to go
1: to the basement or the lowest level on your house, uh, inside a room without windows. And so preferably a basement, um, bathroom, closet, or center hallway. If you don't have a basement, again, that lowest level that you can get to, uh, but do not shelter if at all possible in a room with a water heater or furnace. And so try to avoid those areas. Um, go to the center of a room since the corners do tend to attract debris. And you're gonna wanna cover your head with a blanket or a pillow or something, if at all possible. Okay, what if I'm outside on a run? Uh, If you're outside, it's a great question. I mean, like you said, or maybe on a hike. (laughs) You are gonna seek shelter in a solid structure. So if you're out running or you're out on that hike or you're at the pond or the lake fishing or something, Uh, You know, A, it's always good to just take note of the weather in case there is anything, you have an idea and you can assess your situation ahead of time, have that plan in place and know where you might go. You're gonna wanna get to the nearest solid shelter, uh, a structure, um, but not a shed uh, and not an unsubstantial structure that can't withstand high winds. Uh, You're going to uh, do not use an open outdoor structure like a pavilion or a dugout. Those aren't going to be safe shelters for you. If there's nothing available, so say you're out for that hike or you're at the game or something, uh, and there's a dugout and that's your only option, or there's the snack pavilion, then you're going to want to skip both of those and you're going to want to go to a hard topped car. Uh, if you don't have anywhere to go at all, stay as low to the ground as possible. Uh, do not shelter under any tall object like a tree. Definitely not any utility poles, as
0: lightning is drawn to those taller objects. Okay. So next scenario, um, my power's out. What are some tips? Mm -hmm. Uh, So A, stay inside. If it's a storm that's caused this power outage,
1: you're definitely gonna wanna stay inside. Wait until the power is restored before going outside and definitely before letting your kids go outside. The best option is to stay inside and wait till the power is restored. Uh, if you're using a portable generator, like we talked, it's uh, and, and very important to follow those safeguards. Driving, so if I'm driving and there's a storm and
2: we see that maybe one of the the power poles has fallen over and there are down power lines, what should we do if we're in our car
1: and we encounter something like this? Okay, that's a great, great question. It's important to teach yourself, your kids, teenagers, if you're in a vehicle and ooh, let's say you're in an accident involving a down power line. So, whether that power line is under your wheels or it's laying on your car, you want to stay inside that car. Do not get out. The only reason you would ever want to get out of that vehicle is if it were smoking and on fire. And then there are specific ways that you have to get out. Uh, the reason being is just because those power lines are down, uh, does not mean they're not energized. So you need to wait until the power company can give you the all clear that they have been shut off and they're de-energized. If you think about um, a bullseye, and you've got your bullseye in the center, and then it ripples out into the the red, you know, the red bullseye. Then there's the white circle, then the red circle. Think of that for power. Um, if there's a power line that's gonna be your bullseye. And then it's gonna ripple out in electrical current. Uh, and so that's why if you open that door and you step out, then you have just given power, a place to come through you to get grounded, to go to the ground and that can be deadly.
0: So it's interesting. So it's not just on the actual line itself is why you're saying it's like quote in the air almost. It It's in the ground. It's important to stay in the vehicle um, and
1: call 911 and um, tell them you know what has happened, and they can alert the power company. The power company can de-energize that line, and then the first responders and power company can let you know when it is safe to exit that vehicle. If you see a vehicle that has been in an accident with a downed power line, your first instinct might be to run to that car to help the person inside that is not going to be a good scenario um, because again same thing you're going to run into that bullseye of electrical current that is you know running through the ground that you cannot see it doesn't have to be arcing or sparking like the the power line in order for it to be live they could just be laying there and be completely energized and sending that voltage through the ground and you don't know it so you need to stay at least 50 feet away from that vehicle yell to the person that's in the car to stay there don't get out um, and then you do the same and you can help call 911
0: and keep others away well let's talk about flooding so you know whether it's my basement or my house what kind of considerations do i need to make when it comes to electricity and flooding right uh it's basic and very um
1: very simple to remember if there's flooding in your basement uh Never enter a flooded basement if there are electrical outlets underwater. Uh, Reason being is because that water could be energized. If that water is energized and you step into it, it's not going to be a good outcome. Mm -hmm. That energy is going to come right through that water and through you, and it's going to deliver an electrical shock that potentially could be fatal.
2: I was just going to expand on that. So if I have... Like TVs or other appliances in my basement, or or anywhere where it might be flooded in my house, can I
1: use those? Do I wait? I want to like turn on the news. So you're not going to want to use any water damage electronics um, before they have been properly restored. And I mean, it is possible that they can't be, depending on you know the severity of the flooding. But uh, electrical monitors and appliances need to be cleaned and reconditioned before you may use them again, before it's safe to use them again. And definitely uh, have your water damaged items inspected and approved by a professional before using them. Don't just let them dry out and think, oh,
0: these would be fine to use. For your safety, have them inspected. So the storm is over. Um, but my power's still out, um, and I mean, curious me. I want to see what's going on and what's the damage. Is, was it done to the outside of my house? Do my neighbors have damage? You know, can I go investigate? You know, what's what's the what's the best case? What can I do? Really, the best thing is, like I said earlier, is wait until the power's
1: restored before you go outside. Um, the reason being, so after a storm, like so there's limbs and there's debris that are down. Uh, And they very well may be hiding an electrical hazard. And so you have to treat all downed power lines as if they're energized, whether you can see them or not. So um, if you live in an area and there are power lines around, don't go outside. Just wait. Just wait. That's the safest thing you can do. There has been some very um, sad, unfortunate accidents that have occurred when people have gone outside thinking, you know, they're picking up limbs in the backyard and a young girl picked up what she thought was a limb and it was a power line and it was active, still live, and it was fatal. Another situation I heard about was mom took a little kiddo out to jump in the puddles. You think that's completely harmless and, you know, something fun to do after a storm, get on your little puddle jumper boots and go out well there was a downed power line mom didn't see it little girl had no idea it was in that puddle so this is the example of the water little girl jumped in the puddle the line was live so it's just best and the safest just to stay inside until the power comes back on thank you for all this information carrie um last question for you is
2: You know i'm making now that i'm reminded of all these things because i i don't think you can be reminded enough because it just like sparks us into action right so when i'm making my safety plan what are some of the things that
1: i should consider all right so definitely um, make a safety plan that includes your children your pets and other family members it's also a great idea um, if you have elderly neighbors to check in with them and make sure that they have a plan too. And while you're checking in with them, make note, do they have any electrical uh, things that could, uh, medical equipment or maybe like a lift chair? Because if the power goes out, they might get stuck. Those are great things as a neighbor that you can do for those, you know, elderly folks that you might know, or for your family members, um, you know, just go through your plan, go through your safety, you know, route. If you've you're going to shelter in place. Make sure everyone knows where to shelter. Go over your emergency kit. There are lists out there available um, that you can check out and see ideas of things, but you need medications, you need food, you need water, you need pet supplies, baby supplies, first aid supplies, blankets, pillows, you know, all of these things. You need to remember eyeglasses, you know, batteries, you know, There's just a lot of things and different um, minds and people in your family can help create that list all feel like they've got a part in it. It gives them some ownership in that plan and it makes them, you know, I think just it, it gives them more of an impact. Like I had a part in that plan and I can do this to help my family out.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Carrie, for sharing your knowledge on storm preparedness. I definitely feel more prepared just knowing these things. So now it's time for a special spotlight, the point of the show where we get to shine a spotlight on something cool that we saw in nature this month. And Amy, I'm gonna have you go first. All right, well, um, I had a couple things. I'm
2: fortunate enough to teach a, um, a community college cat class on natural resource management. I took my students out to State Park last week, I think, or the week before. Um, and we just did a prairie diversity sampling Exercise. So we took out little quadrants, and and the students in my class are agricultural students, so they know a lot about corn and beans and wheat and livestock and things like that. So it's always a cool thing when then you take them out and show them a state park, which is a nice state, you know, resource for us to have, and kind of open their eyes to um, the. Uh, other diversity of plant life that exists out there that are uh, can be much more to it than a weed patch. So we talked about um, pollinators and the, the species composition. So it was kind of fun and they had fun doing that. So that's my special spotlight.
0: Awesome. Oh, that's so exciting. I always love to see it. I, even people who like know about plants, like you still have to fight this idea of plant- blindness when it comes to those, quote, weed patches, right? Because people say, oh, yeah, those are the plants I know, but there's so much more there. And so that's really awesome. Amazing. Well, Carrie, um, what's your special spotlight? There's been a few, um, but one that is really kind of cool to me is so
1: I have this birch tree on the side of my house and it was damaged in the storm that we had in July. Um, A huge chunk of it fell off and there's a section still hanging on it. But I was looking at the other day and it had three trunks that came up and the center truck actually fell off a long time ago, a couple of years actually when we moved there. But there are perfectly round woodpecker holes all over the center of that. And it is really cool just to see how precisely round those woodpecker holes are and they are all over it. But I was looking at that and I thought, wow, that's really cool. I need to cut this tree down because those woodpeckers are going to destroy, destroy it. They're going to cut it down themselves. But it was just, it was so cool to me to see that, you know, a woodpecker can create this like perfectly round
0: hole and so many of them. So patterns in nature are so amazing <laughs> sometimes. Right. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And honestly, those woodpeckers are eating those insects in that tree anyway. So it's, it's coming down at some point. But <laughs> like, saying so eye. Uh, I've definitely collected a couple woodpecker uh, like branches and stuff to 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 hold on to them as education tools. So um, just because, yeah, they are so like it's just so cool to see the different things that they make and what they do. So, Amazing. Yeah. well, I'll share mine. Um, I don't know if I've shared this before, but I have this plant in front of my house that I planted because I love I love this particular native species. It's Illinois bundle flower, Dismanthus Um, and it is just my favorite native species i just love how it's got these really cool intricate tiny leaves but the best part of that about it is is actually the seed heads Um, the flowers are really indiscreet they're like white little puffball kinds of things but the seed heads come out in almost like these rosette bundles which is why it's called bundle flower and right now is like the perfect time that they're showcased because the the leaves are starting to die back but those brown seed heads are still kind of sticking around um and so I've actually my master naturalist heard about them and they were like you have seeds like can I have some I was like absolutely I will share with you some seeds so it's like seed season two so I'm collecting and and just you know giving them out like Oprah and um (laughs) so so I just love I'm like it's out my window right now and I'm looking at it, and I just like I just think those little rosettes those bundles are so cool and so That's my special spotlight this month. Well, this has been another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources podcast. Check out next month when we talk with Katie O'Reilly from Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant on invasive species in Lake Michigan. Thanks everybody.